This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello and welcome to episode number 33. This is Bird Shooter, and tonight on the show we are going to speak with Alex Staniforth, who recently published his book, Icefall. It details how he survived two of the deadliest seasons on Mount Everest in 2014 and 2015, and in my first international interview, we talk about his plans for the future. Alex talks uh, very openly about being picked on in his youth, but how he channeled his energy into outdoor pursuits, which eventually led him to raise funds and attempt to climb the tallest mountain in the world on two separate occasions. We discussed backpacking in Nepal, hiking to base camp, life on the mountain, and how he managed to survive the avalanches and rock slides that took many lives over the last two climbing seasons. So here's the show. This is Bird Shooter. I'd like to welcome Alex Staniforth to the show. He recently published a book titled Icefall, which chronicles two trips he made to the highest point on Earth at Mount Everest in Nepal. And he just happened to pick two of the deadliest years on record. So he's here live to talk to us uh, from the UK about his adventures on the mountain. Alex, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, so you know, one of the first things that... Um, that I noticed when I read your book. So your book's titled Icefall, and it's it's out. People can buy it right now, correct? Yeah, it's uh, it's been released for just under two months now. Okay. Um, I mean, you're just you're 20 years old now. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And, and so you're you're just ex- exiting your teenage years. Um, you know, obviously, the first thing that struck me is how different your life is from a lot of 20 year olds out there. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, when you stepped on Everest for the first time, like how did the other climbers respond to you? Cause at the time, your first trip there, were you 18? Is that right? First time in 2014. Yes, I was 18. Okay. And I mean, what, and you were probably one of the youngest people on the mountain. Is that right? Uh, I was the second youngest and I think actually both years round, I was the second youngest behind an Australian girl who was a couple of years younger. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, how, how do people respond to that? I, I could see all sides, right? Like, um, you don't have the experience to be here. I could also see the, the tremendous amount of respect that they'd have for, you know, someone that age taking something like this on. Yeah, interesting question because there was a real mix. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's the assumption that because of age, you know, there's also a lack of experience, a lack of maturity, a lack of competence. But I think some of the older people could could have even less. I think age doesn't necessarily um predefine anything it, it what matters is what you've done in that time and i i felt you know i felt that I'd, I'd crammed a lot into a short time um some people you know just because they were older hadn't necessarily done more um the general response from people on the mountain and the people on the expedition actually was um kind of unwelcoming really i mean some people were quite you know were yeah as you say had the respect for for me Get, getting there really off my own back and kind of there's always a bit of surprise when people realize how young I was but um some people and particularly last year you know I had quite a hard time with with you know people being quite hostile towards me and kind of raising money from sponsorship rather than you know having an affluent job and 
and um, you know not doing the conventional stuff. But at the end of the day, we're all there to climb Everest, and I think that's the important thing. Well, in all fairness, at 20 years old, I mean, you can't be expected to have a you know a million dollar bank account, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so you, you're pretty open in the book about uh, you know your early life, your bouts with epilepsy. You uh, you were challenged with a stuttering um, issue, and you also had a physique that made you a target for bullies. And I think that's a big part of the the theme in your early life that you know you didn't have an easy early life. But back the backcountry seemed to give you uh, a sense of purpose and a sense of peace. Um, can you comment about that? Because I think a lot of people, and I've done through hiking uh, as a backpacker in the states. I think a lot of people I meet. Um, are out there because of that sense of purpose they get from the from the outdoors. But can, can you talk about that and how that sort of paved the way for your interest in adventure sports, really? I mean, it, in that sense, it was uh, it, it was finding the outdoors that kind of gave me confidence and drive to achieve and something that I'd never really had because of my epilepsy and because of the problems associated with that. And although, yes, I didn't have it easy, but equally, a lot of people had it worse. Um, but it was the sort of background that kind of meant that you wouldn't have ever dreamed of me climbing Everest, <laughs> nor would I. But I think it was when I was on holiday when I was 14, and I remember trying paragliding for the first time. And it's quite a, a quite an extreme sport and something that, you know, I would never even imagine doing cause because of my epilepsy. I mean, even though I've not had a seizure now for over 10 years, it was, was a pretty terrifying experience. And um at times, that's left me quite anxious to leave the house without my parents being there for the fear of, you know, having more seizures. Um, so I guess it was this sudden urge on holiday, you know, seeing this thing advertised and just sort of deciding, you know, I'm going to do this. And my mum was a bit shocked, as was I. And basically, I was I was hanging 7,000 foot up in the air the next day. And that urge, wherever, wherever it came from, just changed my life because it was the first time I realised that I could achieve things, I, you know, I could overcome things, and I just, it just grew from there, really. Yeah, and I think I remember in the book, you, you uh, that was a pivotal moment for you, because that was where you decided you were going to fight back, right? Yeah, you know, the outdoors gave me that fight, it gave me something to be proud of, it gave me a sense of achievement, a sense of purpose, you know, a purpose to kind of overcome adversity, which just sort of grew into climbing Everest, and then into using that, that journey to try and make a difference to other people as well so so alex immediately a question that comes to mind is um if you don't have the challenges that you had earlier in your life with the epilepsy, the the stuttering and, and being bullied at school um is there an everest or do you, do you think that was a part of you finding your way there uh it's obviously hard to say but i you know i think on reflection i i, I don't think that um if if things hadn't happened the way they did, I, I really don't know whether I would have ended up on Everest. Of course, not everybody on Everest has, has gone through adversity. Some people just have a, a passion for mountaineering in itself. But um, a lot of people on Everest have have that sort of background. But I can't say, but I, I definitely doubt I would have gone on the path that I've done. And even even with the disasters on Everest, I mean, I'm actually very grateful for those. Not just to, to still be alive and, and that, but just to be able... To have actually learned and and and, gr- and grown a hell of a lot more from from being involved in the disasters than I probably would have done if I'd just reached the top first time round. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely have a lot of questions for you about both your 2014 and 2015 experiences on the mountain. Let, let me ask you, though, because I think one thing that will resonate really well with our listeners is that you opted for a a very different path than a lot of, you know, 18-year-olds take, right? Yeah. Um, our parents, they mean well. They want us to go to school, to study hard, to go to college, to get a job. And, you know, you, you chose a completely different path. Which, um, which, which I think would be exciting to a lot of people that listen to this podcast. But um, I, I guess, what really sent you in this direction? What was it? The paragliding, you think? Um, well, that was just kind of the catalyst, really. And I think you know, it was uh, it was then kind of discovering the outdoors that helped me find Everest. And I think Everest is what was the end goal that kind of defined the path. But I think, I think at school, I, I think I. You know, because of me being badly bullied pretty much throughout my entire time there, and um, and everything else, I think it was uh, kind of a a bit of a will to kind of be different and a way to fight back, and not wanting to be in the crowd like everybody else. And I think with my epilepsy and and everything else, and with my stammering, I always felt different. And it wasn't so much about being better than people; it was just having the courage to follow my own path. And when I found the outdoors, I found that I could achieve different things I could achieve quite big things and at the same time make a, a positive difference through through inspi- inspiring people and by fundraising for charities and that was what kind of felt 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 like a way for me to, to kind of set myself apart and I guess my experiences and things probably matured me faster than I should have done and I kind of didn't have anything in common with people my age and I kind of noticed they were all sort of trying to be like everybody else and focusing on, on grades and, and new university and all doing the same sort of thing. And I just felt, I felt distance from that. I wanted to kind of be different and do my own thing. And the outdoors for me was, was that. And I lost interest in trying to, trying to kind of conform really. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to answer, but I think it, yeah, that stemmed from, 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 from simply finding the outdoors and fighting back against adversity really but I just want I suppose wanting to try and achieve as much as I can and to, to really live to my best potential um and I guess I've just been determined not to not to kind of do what everybody expects of me to try and achieve my potential and it's the outdoors has given me a way to do that and uh yeah it, it, it's hard because even every day you know people ask me you know you know people seem to ask what do you do for work rather than what do you do you know what you're passionate about which is to me is a pretty sorry state you know that we have this you know you know we have this kind of defined path but if you follow the same path you're just going to end up in the same place and I've kind of been trying to rebel against that and of course I talk about that even in the first chapter of my book um exactly why I'm not sure but I think it's it's just to try and live to my best potential and and not settling really for anything that anything less than what I'm capable of so let me ask you about college and university right now, because that is pretty much the path that kids are on at your age. Is that is, is that still something on your radar? Or are you kind of looking down a different path right now? No, I mean uni- university and going to study a degree or college just doesn't really fit into my plan anymore. I mean Everest was sort of a gap year that, that didn't really end, and um, I guess when I was at sixth form, that's like our sort of college equivalent doing doing grades. I kind of signed up to university just because I was kind of you know, forced towards it, sort of told, you know, if I don't go to uni, I'm, you know, I'm going to neglect my future and all of that stuff. And I just kind of signed up because everybody else did. Um, 
and then I was on Everest the first time, and when the first expedition failed, and I remember being sat by a monastery by a load of monks, and I just had this divine intervention, and I just went on my iPhone, found some free G, and just cancelled all five of the offers that I'd got on five different courses at one university. I think because I decided it wasn't it wasn't for me. I think I didn't want to just be like everybody else. I didn't just want to be in this sort of crowd. And I think there's a lot of pressure on, you know, grades and getting a good job and having a nice house and earning lots of money and all this stuff. But to me, it's just, it just it scares the hell out of me. And I felt that I had unfinished business and that Everest was, was taking me a lot further, you know, and that a lot of young people, they, they get these degrees, but then they can't stand out from the crowd. And I think, I think grit's more important than grades. And, Everest itself has kind of become my career almost and I just I just want to keep keep trying to do what I'm passionate about really rather than what everybody tells me I should be doing and I think that's just because people are uncomfortable with with people who you know have the courage to kind of follow their own path but but no I just want to keep doing what I'm doing for as long as I can really. Yeah I mean it definitely takes courage to follow your dreams I mean you're making me think and I was going to Save this for a question at the end of the podcast. I mean, it, it sounds like you've got your, your eyes set on a third run at Everest. Am I right? Well, you know, it, it's, Everest started as a kind of a goal. And to be honest, originally it was going to be one of those things where I just I just did it and I just kind of went back to normality. But that's not really happened. And now it's kind of not Everest itself, but everything that came from it, such as the speaking, the ambassador roles, my book, um, and the other challenges has kind of grown from it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to go back. I think, you know, it's I've got, I've, while I have the chance, I, I don't want to go through life not knowing. Um, but exactly when, you know, I'm, I'm not sure at the moment. Of course, right now is the Everest season, and I knew this year I needed a break. Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. And, and um, I look forward to talking about your time on the mountain. Before we get to the 2014 expedition, let, let's talk quickly about London 2012, because the Summer Olympics were going on in London. You had an opportunity to uh, run a leg of, a, of the torch relay, which is pretty exciting. Can, can you tell the listeners uh, about that experience and how that came to be? Well, yeah, that was a huge honor, I think, you know, to be chosen to do something like that um, was 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 massive and that had a really big role in terms of what came next i think we had a nomination process where people doing good in the community could be kind of put forward and there's only eight thousand places so in the country of over 60 million people you know it isn't isn't a bad a bad feat and i was nominated as a result of my my three peaks challenge which was the first sort of challenge and, and fundraiser that i did and uh, that basically was obviously what well, that was what got me the job. Um, and then it was probably May 2012 that you know that 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 the day came and I only got to run 300 meters. It's less than a quarter of a mile, so it was over before it started. But it was just the most magical, exhilarating, unreal couple of minutes of my life with crowds of people just just cheering you through and um yeah completely unforgettable i mean to be part of something and to have to have the olympic flame above your head for a couple of minutes and everybody dies on you is just surreal and right next you know right even right now a couple of meters away my olympic torch is um it's still there on its perch and you know that's a, a reminder really of the whole experience 
Yeah, and one thing that uh, was interesting to me in the book is that you know obviously fundraising is a big part of uh, finding your way to Everest. You either have to have a lot of money or you got to find a way to get it. Um, and you, you had mentioned in the book that that torch is actually worth a lot of money on eBay or if it's sold, but uh, you, you that was just something that you couldn't do, even though it was a free ticket to Everest. I mean. <laughs> At the time, of course, there was a big hype around somebody selling the, the torch for an absurd amount of money. But um, to be honest, I've, the torch has barely left its stand for about two years. I think, although it's, it was a, a massive, massive achievement at the time and, and a massive experience that really helped me grow, it's, I think further down the line, it's almost forgotten because I think compared to some of the things that, some of the other things I've done, you know, it's just another thing, really. Um, and... I think integrity is always more important and I was able to use the torch to inspire people through and young people for through talks and things and um you know right now I mean if I was to sell it now I wouldn't really care but at the time it was um yeah it was really important to me and that was more you know and that's why I couldn't really just allow that to go so easily really so your experience um uh, you know, being a torchbearer actually gave you an opportunity to do a fair amount of public speaking. I would imagine it gave you some exposure for for people that became eventual donors to your cause. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, how how that was an important part of you building to Everest. Is that fair to say? Oh, definitely. Because I still remember, kind of at this time, Everest. The goal was there, but I knew it would happen one day. But at this point, it was just a pipeline dream. I think it gave me coverage, it gave me the exposure and kind of media stuff that I needed in able to, to, to kind of secure sponsors. And it just gave me a talking point. You know, when you can, well, when you're a torchbearer, you just got an extra string to the bow. Um, and I think it was, um, it was the people that I met from that. And some of that had, had worked in sponsorship, some other torchbearers. And the things I learned from that experience alone actually... Um, actually massively uh, contributed to my overall success. And, and so let's talk about Everest 2014 uh, for, for now. And it, I, I guess the question I would have for you is at what point after London and the 2012 Olympics did you commit to the climb? Like w when did it become reality for you? Well, it's all a, a very strange kind of chain of events because um, I was running competitively. I was training for a club and you know, entering all sorts of events from 5K to half marathon. And um, and I picked up an injury uh, the back end, well, the same year as the Olympic torch. So while all the torch stuff was going on, because it wasn't just a run, it was so much other stuff and talks and meetings and um, special invites and VIP events and um, and a big kind of sense of, family that that we had of all the torchbearers and that just kept me so so busy all summer especially climbing Mont Blanc in between but when I when I picked up an injury early on that year you know that was kind of I was kind of distracted from the injury by so much exciting stuff going on and towards the end of the year when the Olympic torch kind of died down and everything else I just kind of you know that was when I kind of realized, you know, I still can't run. I still can't cycle. I still can't do all these outdoor things that I enjoy doing. And I guess that sank me into a, a bad state of depression and anxiety. So anyone who knows who's been there will, will just know how crippling that can be. And I think 
it was the kind of come down from the torch that kind of put me there. Um, so I remember reading a a book by Bear Grylls and the story of how he kind of broke his back just kind of 18 months before he climbed Everest. And, of course, Bear Grylls has endorsed my book, um, but I'll come to that shortly. So it was then that kind of gave me the glimmer of hope that I needed to kind of to fight back and that I needed a new goal. I realised I needed something to give me purpose to get out of bed every morning. And by this point, I'd, you know, I was still fascinated with Everest. I still knew roughly the steps I had to take to get there. I just had to kind of commit because a goal is a dream with a deadline. And basically there and then, I one night, it was a, a winter night, I was, you know, I needed something to get me out of this kind of, this black hole I dug myself into. And so I just decided that 2014 would be the year that I climb Everest, just as you do. And I, I just, again, it was some kind of strange urge or premonition that just made me do that. And, well, you know, I never looked back. And then, obviously, 18 months of planning later, you know, I had 18 months to actually make it happen. Didn't know if I'd ever train again, let alone train to climb Everest. I was there for my first attempt 18 months later. Yeah, and you had mentioned in your book that uh, there, there's kind of two aspects to climbing Everest, right? There's physically getting your body ready to do it, but then there's the fundraising. And, and um, I think you were told by some other people that had made the climb that uh, the fundraising is maybe the bigger challenge. Do you, do you want to talk to that? Um, I would also add there's also the, also the mental aspects and just the general practicality. If people have, you know, wives, husbands, kids, full-time jobs, that can get in the way even before everything else. And it's not so much about being physically experienced, it's about having the, the mountaineering CV and the competence to be able to look after yourself on Everest. And, and yeah, I mean, as for the, for the financial, I mean, raising the money was a, a sustained year of effort and, you know, of, of, of sacrifice, of dedication, commitment. You know, it had to be my full-time job. And... As I said, I can't really make a comparison, but it was um, it was a massive, massive challenge, and not so much in complexity, but more just the sustained grit and tenacity to keep doing the same thing day after day, really. Yeah, and I know you had to work hard for every penny that you earned. Um, you weren't an experienced mountaineer. I mean, you're only 20 now. You're 18 at the time, so it's not like you had many, many years to spend on mountains before you got there. No. Can you talk about um, your training prior to Everest? I know you hiked a number of peaks in Europe. You uh, you did a warm-up trip to Nepal, um, but can you kind of walk us through your training? I mean, you know, before Everest, you want as much experience at altitude to be aware of how your body performs and just to be comfortable and competent in that environment. I mean, at that sort of altitude, dropping a glove can be a life-or-death situation, um, you know, and people don't realize that, and... I mean, I had a background in in British mountaineering, in in rock climbing, in in hill walking, both in summer and winter, and um, I guess uh, you know that set me up to progress from there. So my first stage was Mont Blanc in the Alps, which is the highest peak there, and that for me was a major milestone. And really, it was a case of advice, you know, learning so much off other people, speaking to them, to people who've been there. Really, that's the best way to learn is is just for everything you don't know, find someone who does. So it was very much a case of, of learning and growing from other people. Um, so Mont Blanc was the milestone. Then 
from there I went to Nepal for a month, um, about six months before my first attempt to try and climb Burunsi, which is a 7,000 meter peak. Um, and then Mera Peak on the same trip, which is a little bit smaller. So that, of course, was my first taste of a, of a big expedition. You know, I couldn't just jump from Mont Blanc to, to Everest. Back home, there was obviously Scottish winter climbing, which is probably the best training somebody like me can do for Everest besides expeditions because of the, the conditions are wild. They push you outside your comfort zone. And it's it's that sort of being able to look after yourself and being able to kind of cope with being out on the mountains in the cold for a long period of time um and then of course you want your body to be in the best shape it can be it's it's common sense you want to give yourself every chance so it's a combination of hiking and uh with big rucksacks in all weathers in all times of day in the mountains near near home endurance cycling to obviously work on well endurance and cardio um and then a bit of weight training uh, again, just to kind of build resilience and endurance and some high intensity work as well. Um, I guess just to make your body as resilient as possible to the, the environment. Sure. So this is a backpacking podcast. I'm very curious, um, you know, because some of the listeners probably know, have no intent of ever trying to climb Everest, but may want to go to Everest Base Camp. Can you talk about getting to Kathmandu, getting to base camp, you know, what the hike up there is like. Can you sort of give the listeners a, um, a, a an idea of what that experience would be for them? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, every space camp, it's renowned. Everybody knows what, you, you know, the reputation it has. And I would certainly advise any any backpackers of, of all ages and abilities because it's so open that every space camp or just, Nepal in general would be an amazing experience for them. I mean, I've, I'm lucky enough to have been to Nepal three times. Two of those trips on the same trek, one of those in a different, more remote and isolated area. Um, both have the unique charms. And I would um, I would say what stood out for me is just the scale of the Himalayas. You know, the walking, you know, early on and lower down, it's quite hot, it's quite quite humid, it's you know, people think of the Himalayas as cold, but actually it's it's like, it, it's almost tropical. And then in the distance, you've just got these walls and, and towers and cathedrals of, of these massive snowy peaks. And it's just, it's otherworldly. You know, the scale of it is just, you just don't know where to feast your eyes, really. Um, I think it's a cheap place, to, you know, well, relatively cheap place to visit. You know, it's easy to get there. The people, I think, for me, are what make it so special. I mean, that's, of course, it's been a big part of what I do is, is fundraising for the Sherpa people, but they're so hospitable, they're, they're so kind and humble, and they have so little, but they give so much. And I think most people who go to Nepal are, are touched most by the people. And just the whole culture, it's, um, it's, it's different. And I know I've not traveled many places, but I don't think anywhere could really touch on the way that the Nepalese people are. Yeah, and can you talk about just, uh, I guess, if you trek to base camp, you're actually living in their homes, and, you know, there's a whole business around the little villages that uh, su supply base camp. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So, I mean, some some treks will stay in tents, but we, ours on our, you know, our trek was three weeks before base camp to allow us to acclimatize properly and just take our time really some people race ahead and you know they don't get to enjoy the experience so we we stayed in tea houses so that's basically basically their equivalent of like a, a kind of a hotel or a hostel and you're basically living in their in their homes um and 
part of their culture and it's very very tourist centered especially on the Everest base camp trail um we went a little bit off the beaten track um on the Brunsky trip we were properly out there and we were mostly staying in tents because there wasn't any tea houses we were completely off the track and I'll be honest that was a more special experience because you really get the isolation and the remoteness of the Himalaya but in general I think it's um you know it's so accessible you know there's so many places so many different things and it's it's physically I mean I mean I guess if you're in every shape it's not going to be physically strenuous for some people you know they have a really hard time the the key really I think is just to go slowly and to enjoy it and and keep safe but it's um it's such a cultural and religious and friendly place you know there's so much you can do out there um but I think staying in the tea house as I said it's um you know, it's it's just so accessible and so easy. Yeah, now, the adventure tours that go to base camp, do they mostly do that um, when the mountaineers are not there? Because I would imagine during the climbing season, everyone's preoccupied with getting up and down the mountain. When when do the adventure groups go there? Um, I'm not totally sure, because obviously the the Everest summit season is, is well, now it's kind of pre-monsoon, so April, May. Um, but there are a lot of people trek to base camp at that time of year, but base camp trekkers aren't allowed to stay in, stay in base camp, you know, unless they're on a summit permit. So they, they don't really get in the way, you know, when you're, when you're walking the final bit towards base camp, so you're going through Lobache and Gorat Shep, you know, you see hordes and hordes of them coming in and you see people kind of keeled over because of the altitude and all that. And, um, and further down the valley, you know, you see a lot of groups. But I think... There is more in the autumn, you know, kind of in the October, November, where there's very, very few summit expeditions. Um, there tends to, tend to be more trekkers at that time of year. For what reason, I don't know. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about your experience on Everest now. Um, you know, you committed a lot of physical, mental, and financial capital to get there in 2014. I- I'll let you tell what happened because uh, 2014 was a, a major a major event in the history of Everest, right? Well, why don't you tell the story? Well, it was, at the time, the biggest disaster in Everest history, more so than into thin air, and, you know, back in 96. And, um, I mean, we got, well, we were one day away from base camp, and uh, all was going well. You know, here we are, living the dream. And then there was a major avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall, which sadly killed 16 people, 16 climbing Sherpas, who were just in the worst place at the worst time um so to cut that long story short because you know otherwise i'll talk all day and there's there's, you know there's more in the book of course but there was a political struggle between the sherpas and the ministry of tourism and to get their demands they had to be listened you know well to, to get listened to they had to basically halt the climbing season the only way to do this was obviously to get at the climbers um we hadn't done anything wrong. There was nothing against us, but the only way to get heard was was essentially to to bring the bring the whole expedition season to a close. Um, and they did this by intimidation and threats against the other Sherpas. In other words, telling them that if they climb with us, you know, then they're going to get hurt. And the route, obviously, through the icefall needed repairing, and they threatened the icefall doctors. Um, and um, yeah, things got pretty tense and pretty nasty. And after a week of kind of keeping our heads low at base camp, you know, not knowing what was going to happen. The expeditions were cancelled and we had to head home. But 
yeah, it turned pretty bitter actually. Uh, quite a scary experience. Um, so walked out of base camp having not actually stepped foot above, you know, above base camp. All that you know that year. Yeah, right. And and the, so the Sherpas just basically went on strike. I mean, they were led by a, a group that decided to there was have them go on strike. A small right? number basically indoctrinated them. It wasn't you know. It was so badly reported in the media. I mean, there was no Sherpa strike. There was just a few people basically stirring the whole thing up and kind of kind of biting hands that fed them, really. Um, so essentially, yes, it was a strike. I mean, yes, it got them what they needed, but they just had to go about it in, in the worst way, really. Yeah, and, and one thing that did happen is, um, and I believe you were gone at this time, but didn't another avalanche occur and it killed some additional people? So, like, as many as 24 people died that year? Do I have that correct? What, the same year as 2014? Yes, correct. Uh, not that I'm aware of. There was just the one avalanche. However, okay. when when there was a meeting at base camp between some officials and what have you and the Sherpas, just as that meeting basically, well, I think, was about to finish and they were trying to negotiate with the Sherpas, there was another major avalanche in the icefall that literally had to come crashing down at that very moment, and that basically, that was basically as if the mountain was was making itself known. And of course, nobody was in the icefall at that point, so nobody was hurt. But I, I remember all the Sherpas cheering because they kind of knew they'd won. You know, it was almost like the mountain was telling everybody to go away. Right, and so you return home and. Um you, you decide that you're going to hike Everest again, but then you have to start your fundraising all over again, correct? Pretty much. It wasn't quite as expensive second time round, but you're still talking quite a lot of money. And I think I also had to deal with the, the problem of, of, you know, the bad press, you know, the bad reputation because Everest and all this bad stuff had happened and there's a lot of risk responses. But getting the money second time round wasn't as difficult, um, actually. I think from experience and through the contacts, and I was very lucky early on to to have the support of a business who still support me now and uh, will will be supporting me for the next you know 18 months and my next expeditions um, so so yeah I mean essentially though it was a case of having to start from scratch and having to to really kind of change the plan almost yeah and when you return home if if I recall from the book you do the epic 7 challenge which is a way to keep yourself physically fit but it's also a way to sort of keep the interest going and help raise some more funds did did I describe that correctly and can you tell about the epic 7 challenge I mean yeah uh, you know that's exactly right and it was just a way of kind of keeping the momentum going to to fundraise for the sherpas who died because you know I was lucky I came back and, yeah, to get myself better prepared for the next attempt, I sort of knew straight away that I was going to have to go back. Um, i got to ask you, how in the world did you convince your mom that this was a good idea? <laughs> well, you know, she's, I'm pretty fortunate. She's really supportive. And I know, I, I, I know she kind of has kittens through the process, but she knows it's so important to me and she's not going to stop me doing what I'm passionate about. But I'm, I'm sure she'll be glad to see the back of it. Um, Originally she said no, but I'm kind of too stubborn, you know. And I think, I think at the same time she's incredibly proud, really. And um, yeah, she'll be glad though, especially after last year, you know, when it when it's done. Yeah, and I saw on your Twitter page you just recently had a fundraising um, effort for for some of the Sherpas. Um, you you raised money after the 2014 um, 
catastrophe. Get, I mean, roughly how much money have you raised for the uh, for the Sherpa villages and, and their people? Well, last uh, well last Sunday in particular, I organised a, a fundraising walk up Snowdon, which is the highest peak in Wales uh, over here. So we had 120 people on top of the mountain, um, including three of the Gurkhas who were on Everest with me last year, and Alan Hinks, who is one of, well, he's one of the, the best mountaineers we've ever had over here. Um, so that event raised over £15,000, which is enough to fund two health posts for a year, which is obviously a massive difference. Um, that was to mark the one-year anniversary, of course, of the earthquake that hit Nepal um, last year. And that wasn't necessarily just for the Sherpas, that was just for Nepal in general, you know, to help them to rebuild. Um, the Epic 7 idea and, and also f- supporting the Himalayan Trust through the Everest expedition as well um, kind of worked out well because when the earthquake happened, of course, they had a fundraising page set up and it obviously hit the news back home and, and it got so much support. So in the end, um, I think I raised over £13,000 through the expedition and Epic Seven, and then obviously fifteen thousand pounds last weekend. So nearly thirty thousand pounds for Nepal now. And um, my book, I'm also donating a percentage of my sales that I sell at events and kind of signings to uh, Nepal as well. So you've got karma working on your side, Alec. Alex. That's a good thing. Well, let's hope so. I mean, you know, I don't. I do it, of course, because I care about the people and because they've been hit so hard and they do so much for us and just because, you know, I'm lucky to come home and some of them weren't. So it's a moral obligation. But, but yeah, you know, I would hope that the mountain gods will look after me. <laughs> so 2015, you go back. I mean, was it deja vu to be back in Kathmandu, to be back in base camp? Did you see a lot of the, the familiar faces from the year before? Um well, I was on the same team. Some of the people on that team were back. And, uh, yeah, there was a sense of deja vu, but this time there was no kind of premonitions. It just felt right. It, well, I'd say there was some premonitions, but it just felt right this time. It felt like it was going to happen. And, you know, this time everything, well, started well. It started as as hoped and, you know, it didn't seem like anything would go wrong. Obviously, that was um, that was short-lived. So this time I was 19. You know, I had some of the same sponsors supported me twice. Westgrove Group were my head sponsor, as they are now, and um, it kind of worked out for the best. You know, sometimes Plan B becomes Plan A all along. So a year stronger, you're more confident, and then we actually got a chance to start on the mountain. We start going through the icefall, which is the glacier just above base camp, you know, the most treacherous section with the, uh, with the you know, with all the big house-sized blocks of ice and the and you know and you know the, and the cracks in the ice and and all that and it was um it was magical experience to actually be able to start progressing on the mountain so for anyone who doesn't know there's a lot of um acclimatization rotations where you have to move up to the higher camps to adjust to the altitude before you go for the summit bid you know you're at base camp for four or five weeks it's a long process so, and, and for the listeners, that icefall is the the icefall, the title of your book, and also the one that killed the sixteen Sherpas in April of twenty fourteen, right? Yeah. So the icefall, of course, it, it's the place. It's you know the moving glacier just above base camp, but also I titled it 
I cancelled my book the same because, of course, I was in the icefall for what happened next. And the icefall, as you say, is, is, is where 16 lost their lives. And I very nearly lost mine. So, basically, um, the day of the Nepal earthquake, which I'm sure everybody will have heard about, um, which happened on the 25th of April last year. Um, so, the anniversary has just gone, actually. Um, I was just below Camp 1. So, Camp 1 is about the same height as Kilimanjaro, uh, a little bit higher, about 6,000 metres. So, you're talking in a pretty serious altitude. Um, and, uh, let me recall, I mean, I was probably half an hour away, so I've been walking for probably six hours. We'd left base camp. Early, very early that morning at first light uh, with the aim of reaching Camp 1. We stay there for one night. We move a little bit higher to Camp 2, stay there for two nights, come back down to base camp for a rest. That would be the first rotation. So I was so tired, I was just looking forward to arriving at camp. I was um, on my own. Most of my team had raced ahead. There was thick fog all day, so I couldn't really see anybody. I was on my own. Just kept my head down, focused on the rope, pulling along one step at a time and it would soon be over. And I was so tired, you know, walking on these big open blocks of ice that I didn't actually feel the ground shaking. I didn't actually feel the earthquake. I just remember hearing this massive crack above my head, which, of course, is the is the sound of ice breaking off the mountain. So I know I'm in trouble and I need to get out of there pretty fast, which is an understatement. Um, of course, behind that is the distant rumble of an avalanche, which is coming straight at me from above. And... I know I'm in a similar position to where the people died the year earlier. Um, there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. I just have to move as fast as I can and try and get out of the way. Um, and all the time this noise is like a, a deafening roar and a, a, a giant blast. It's just like a primal scream. And I, you know, uh, I just hope I can try and get out of the way in time from the west shoulder of Everest to my left. And so through the fog... I, I couldn't see it, you know, I could hear it, but couldn't see where it's coming from. Um, so I guess I feel more energy and, and more speed than I felt all day, you know, just kind of pulling along as fast as I can. And then I guess after I kind of well, felt more energy than I felt all day. And after a kind of a, a minute or so, it just, I started to calm down. I started to assume that I must have escaped, you know, it should have hit me by now, did this thing. And then the air pressure just changes and then this just, this kind of wall of soft snow just hits me with a whack, really, and, well, for the first time in my life, just accepted, this is it, so, so this is how I die. Yeah, and uh, some of your team members thought you were dead, right? They didn't even come to look for you, because they didn't think that you survived the, uh, the avalanche, correct? I mean, basically, it was a, it was a big powder avalanche, a pretty harmless, you know, not what you would normally expect to have an avalanche but believe me when one of those things is coming at you you uh you don't know it's harmless so after maybe a minute or so you know i'm being blasted by what felt like a snow cannon and the wind coming through at 100 miles an hour and knocking me onto my knees and can't breathe from the snow going down my throat just freezing me solid and definitely white all around and it's, it's a deafening blast you know in my ears and i'm just kind of nothing i can do but just stand and take it and thinking that any second now, ice is just going to bury me here. It's all going to go black. And pure fear, you know, pure fear like I could never describe. And helplessness and think of my family back home. And then it just stopped. And then, you know, it just fell silent. And I just staggered onto my knees and just moved as fast as I could to Camp One. Just before anything else happened. And I presume the guys behind me and my team, who were probably 20 minutes behind or so, had... And died, but there's nothing I can do to help them. I just, 
kept moving, you know, just in shock, really. Um, and then I and this this was all triggered by a earthquake that happened what about 160 miles away down in the valley is that right it, yeah it was triggered by the earthquake in nepal and the, the thing is people think there was one avalanche well there's avalanches all over the place uh this is just one of them so from then on i mean i've come across two guys in my team and they're kind of surprised to see me and at this point two guys who'd been at camp one already kind of come down to you know kind of emerged out of the fog on a rope and I learned later on that they'd, everyone at Camp 1 had already kind of agreed to start a search party, but they'd already said that because I was so far behind the others that they had to assume that either I hadn't survived or wouldn't survive the night. So you guys basically couldn't even get back to base camp. You were entirely cut off, correct? Yeah, and, yeah. And you basically hung out at Camp 1 until you could be evacuated? So, yeah, so basically the route down to base camp had just been wiped out. Um, it was unsafe. It was, uh, yeah, it was just buried and destroyed so we had no choice but to stay put you know we, we were stuck there floating like ducks in a pond really for two days well you know there's aftershocks from the earthquake and more avalanches as a result coming down at us from both sides and any one of them could just bury us and sweep us could sweep across the whole valley you know camp one's exposed it's not a safe place to be um but nothing we can do we just have to sit there and make the best of a situation really and and everybody in that team has has a role to play um but we only have supplies for one night we're told we could be there for a week so so yeah it was a, a pretty helpful situation but fortunately everybody at camp was unhurt and the, you know the tents had escaped so yeah we just had to sit there and wait for helicopters really i still can't believe your mom's gonna let you go back there <laughs> so uh of course you're 20 you're old enough to make your own decisions but um t so eventually you get a helicopter back down to base camp and when you get to base camp it's there's parts of it that are just actually shredded including your campsite you would have most certainly been killed if you had been in base camp probably when that when the boulders or the basically snow blocks came rolling through do you want to talk about that well, base camp was hit by an even bigger avalanche, like a, a tsunami of rock and snow and ice. Like it just released from the nearby peak. It hadn't come from the icefall. It came from the opposite direction, and, and the media got that completely wrong. So this thing obviously happened in the fog. Nobody saw it, and the earthquake had obviously triggered this thing. It's just like however many feet high, um, and it just obliterated a pretty large section of camp. You know, base camp's a large place. Some teams on the far side had had just heard this noise and carried on having their lunch but our team was in the most directly hit area um and was just 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 wiped out ripped the shreds everything had gone you know and um most of the deaths that happened at base camp all 22 of them happened in the teams around ours um so you got everything from spades to shoes scattered everywhere you got blood on the ground there's like a plane crash you know like a bomb blast like something i've never seen before you know we didn't know where to begin and you got barrels of gear, you know, like kind of half buried in the snow or thrown probably a kilometre away. You know, that's a long way to throw a, a bit of gear just from the blast. You know, people were thrown hundreds of metres through the air and it was just, it was just unbelievable. It, the force was, you know, incomprehensible. So we come down and, you know, obviously we're, we're back off the mountain waiting to see what happens next really and then... um Obviously, we come across camp and just start. We spent two days trying to sort of dig and get things back to normal the best we could, really. Um, you know, just trying to dig things out, and there was no pattern to it. You know, we found our tents buried under a foot of ice and ripped apart like paper, and 
our mess tent where we would have been having our meals because you know it happened before lunchtime we would have either been in there or our own tents and the mess tent was a solid steel frame you know that was just mangled and and thrown like a a paper airplane you know many meters away and that was when we realized that we we stood no chance and we lost three of our team who were at base camp you know had we well when we saw them at base camp that morning that was the last time we'd see them alive yeah and i i want to give the listeners a reason to read your book and don't want to tell them um essentially what happened from that point on on the mountain so that they have some reason to get your book. But um, you, you returned to the UK. Uh, it sounds like it was almost bittersweet. I mean, you um, had two experiences on the mountain, which are the deadliest in the history of the mountain. And, um, I mean, just describe your trip home. I mean, I, I'm sure everyone was worried about you. Uh, I think I remember in your book a lot of the media wanted to interview about your experience there, but maybe that was a time when you weren't ready for that. Yeah, I mean, I guess for a couple of days you're in survival mode and you just have to neglect anything that's not important and you just forget about Everest and the summit and you just want to get out of there, really. And, you know, you see how how everybody responds or something like that. But I think it wasn't until I got home and I was on my own that actually hit me and I just broke down. And I remember kind of being in the airport full of tears and you just forget about the climbing and you just focus on the fact that so many people have lost their lives, you know, 9,000 people across the country and you see such devastation in such a beautiful place. Um, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really hard to get back on my feet after all that. And as you said, you know, the media were like hounding my mum and even knocking on my front door and, you know, wow, she's going through all this and knowing that I'm trapped in a bloody, you know, earthquake zone. Um, I think, uh, it was difficult because you know I couldn't really handle it all, and um, I just felt guilt to be home and to be alive, really. Um, and I think it was um, it was just it was a pretty difficult, surreal experience, kind of survivor's guilt, I guess. And I think just seeing such such poignant, just needless devastation. But but yeah, you know the media were pretty intense, and they wanted to speak to speak to us, and they were pretty you know pretty um, impatient in that sense. Yeah, and let's talk about skeptics for a second, because any, anyone that has ever put themselves out there, you know, making a podcast, uh, climbing Mount Everest, whatever, you know, they're skeptics. They they love to. I think you had the quote: "Dreams do come true, and skeptics hate it." Hate it, right? <laughs> I love that quote. I mean, how do you deal with sort of the trolls that distract you from from your dreams, from you know the the positive message that you try to take forward? There's always going to be them, and I think. If you don't have skeptics, then there's probably something wrong. I think everybody has them, and as I've done more and more, I've probably had more and more. But you, you just learn that you. I mean, you just learn that what they're telling you isn't important. And yeah, it does get to you. You know, I think everyone else says it will get to you, but I think people only knock you down when you're above them or if they're insecure in themselves. And you know, everybody can. Everybody has a story to tell, and you just have to know who to listen to and who not to listen to. Um, I was badly bullied at school and that still lives with me and I guess part of it's kind of raising a middle finger to, to them and to adversity but it's also good to prove people wrong. It's not about being cocky, it's about it's about being able to, to stand up for what you believe in. And, you know, I, I've had some pretty crude things. I've had bullies, I've had messages and emails and especially since the avalanche when we kind of got the blame for it as the climbers, you know, when which is unfair. But... You know, it's it's part of the parcel, and I think um, you just have to learn just to let it go straight over your head. And it's quite fun, you know, kind of 
taking the mick <laughs> back out of the yeah. steps sometimes. And it, like with anything, it's how you respond to it. You know, one guy sent me a barrage of abuse. Uh, sent me a, a barrage of abuse. So I wrote a blog in protest about cyberbullies and about skeptics, and and that that blog raised an extra heap of cash for my anti-bullying fund. So, you know, I think I won. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I know that's a great point. It's it's uh, how you respond and how you get up after you've been knocked down. Um, is there a movie being made about uh, your experience on the mountain? Didn't I see a trailer for that online? I'm working with a, a local production firm on a small trailer just about my own personal journey experiences, but it's not the sort of movie you're going to see in the cinemas. Just to really document the story that I'm, you know, my own story, really. Um, but at the moment, I... that, that's what I saw online. Then I saw that uh, that uh, piece. Then yeah, there's a there's kind of a trailer film just documenting my own story, really. But at the moment, I'm just focusing on on Icefall and the book and trying to get the story out there. And right now, I'm actually just reading my local magazine with um, a five star review of the book, actually. So so. You know, the, you know, the book itself is going well, and if that becomes a film, then that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we kind of close the podcast out, maybe this is a good time for you to um, tell the listeners, you know, how they can follow you. I, I know you're on Twitter. You've got a Facebook page. You also have a, a blog and a website. Do you want to, um, you know, give them a way to uh, keep tabs on you? Because you're obviously going back to Everest the way you're talking. Well, you know, there's um, there's a lot more to come, and the Sel Everest is just part of the journey. And you know, I've I've, I've you know, it's um, you know, I I think it's actually just going to be the start for me now. So there's there's so much to come, and it would be great to have people following me, really, and especially considering my track record of disasters. Um, so so yeah, um, people can follow me on my blog, which is on my website, alexstanleythorpe.com. Um. On there, there's links to you know my Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and that sort of thing. Um, my Twitter is Alex underscore Stanleyforth. Facebook Alex, well Facebook.com slash Alex Adversity um, because adversity is, is is what my story is about. It's about you know it's not about how you succeed. It's about how you stand back up again. And that's all I'm going to keep on doing really. And as people will follow my updates and they'll follow my blogs, my videos, and and my future books. You know. But Icefall tells the story so far. Um, it's available on Amazon, um, on Kindle and paperback. Uh, signed copies available through my website. Um, judging by you being a US podcast, it's also available in Barnes and Noble, um, and it's been published by Coventry House, who are based in Ohio. So, so yeah, so it's a little bit closer over the pond than you think. Um, but it'd be great to have you know people follow me, and I've I've got another eight thousand meter peak planned later this year so i guess i have to keep tuned i guess yeah are you gonna are you gonna tip us off on where you're headed um not for now they'll have to sign up to my blog <laughs> <laughs> there you go i like that that's a good plug um you, you obviously had a tremendous amount of support and help from people as you um went on this journey which you know is even beyond everest obviously are there and i know you can't thank them all but are there a couple people that really come to mind that uh significantly made an impact on you being able to uh, make this a dream come true? I mean, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of people, and I can't thank them all. I mean, my mum has been absolutely instrumental in terms of allowing me the support and the time and the the opportunity, really, to, to get to allow me to get, get on with it without forcing me down that beaten path, as we discussed earlier. 
So my mum especially, the fact that she continues to support me considering what I put her through. Um, and then, you know, I think I think my mentors, you know, uh, Chris and Steve and John in particular, have been um, have all helped me to get to where I need to be and, and still continue to, to, to really get me back on my feet and put me in the right direction. Um, I'm, my good friend Steve especially has, has, has always been there to, to really help me make the right decisions. So those people in particular, um, you know, yeah, in, in your book, your actual, your book has some details on those people, yeah. which will give them another reason to buy it. There is a big acknowledgement section and all the people in there are, are thanks. And, and I said the full story of everything. And, you know, some, some, some stuff in that story hasn't been told before. That's the first book about both disasters. I was the only, well, the first book from somebody who's been there both years. So, there's obviously all the details there and, you know, a bit of speculation and, and some probably quite surprising things. So, so, so as I said, the, that and the acknowledgements are all in the book, really. Um, but I'd like to thank those people in particular, but everybody, you know, from my Twitter followers to, to anyone who's donated to, you know, everybody becomes part of that, part of the parcel, really. Do you have, uh, Alex, do you have any closing advice for somebody that... Um is is planning a trip to Everest? Well, not necessarily just Everest, just 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 any any goal, any challenge. I mean, let me let, let me read to you a, a quote that I've currently got um, painted on on my wall in front of me, which is the greatest suffering brings the greatest successes. And from what I found so far, I, I would say that that's pretty damn true. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you had that in the book. I think toward the end. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a pleasure to have you on the uh, podcast, and uh, I'll certainly be watching to see uh, where you're headed next, and uh, wish you the best. Yeah, thank you very much, Steve, and thanks for having me, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys the podcast. You know, all I'd say, guys, is, you know, get out there and get exploring. Well, good luck to you, Alex, Cheers. and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be uh, seeing your victory dance on top of a peak soon. <laughs> we'll hope so. Cheers, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the Podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show is provided by Jerris under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of Into Backpacking and is copyrighted by Into Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at intobackpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.